It is good to see you. Um, you know, I was preparing and had actually scheduled for this week to continue in our series on 1 Samuel. But the more I thought about it, <laughs> um, and I've seen, you know, posts on Facebook or, or just a plethora of things, you're watching the media, you just see what's going on. And the explanations that people are coming up with, either they're totally godless or they're uh, pushing too much where God did not reveal in his word. Um, and so I thought it would be better for us to, to spend some time just looking at these things so it will be a more unusual than our sermons uh, they are. But as the war in Israel ramped up over this past week, social media accounts across the Christian spectrum exploded with quotations of Psalm 122, verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. People posting that. That statement raises some important questions, namely, why do we pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Or even how should we be praying for the peace of Jerusalem? What are the requests that we should be bringing before the Lord? I am indebted to Pastor Rich Gregory, he's one, one of our professors at the seminary, who wrote a helpful blog article in this week in the Cripple Gate website entitled, Should We Pray for the Peace of Jerusalem? So I'm depending here heavily on his outline to discuss this topic with you this morning. Um, and I just am amazed on God on his providence. Had died in last week preaching from First Timothy. And I, maybe I wanted to start with that passage to refresh our minds. Um, First Timothy chapter 2. Um, so Dylan was speaking of the priority for us to engage in evangelistic prayer. So I hope this message would work as a follow-up of, of that sermon. If you haven't had the chance to listen to it yet, it is posted on our website. Um, he did a wonderful job. And um, it will be a little different today than our traditional expository sermons. Um, but as we discussed, I discussed with the elders, they also thought, okay, I think it is, it is good and appropriate for us to address these things. And so I want to address this issue with you from a serious biblical perspective and not from a speculative point of view that flooded the media and churches nowadays. So uh, let's get started with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. First of all, then, I urge you, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. For kings and all who are in authority, authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself 
as a ransom for all and the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed as a preacher and apostle, and I'm telling you the truth, and I'm not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you with um, just heavy hearts, even as Eric shared this morning, um, the atrocities that are going on in the Middle East right now. And um, Lord, we're thankful that we get to worship you with no hindrances in here. Um, but our hearts do go out for those things that are happening there. And I ask, Lord, that you'll give us clarity as we look at what is happening around us and as we look at your word. May we find hope and encouragement and even guidance on how we should pray for this situation. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to get outside a little bit of our, our own uh, concerns with our family members, with our work, and set all these things aside and to think about your plan for salvation of all people. Lord, just help us not to be so selfish, to, be, to look at this news and just move on, but to find a place to, to plead with you for the salvation and for peace, the true, genuine peace that only comes through Christ Jesus. I pray that you would bless our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so following uh, Dr. Rich, Rich Gregory outline, I want to answer those questions by covering the, in three aspects. What is happening in Israel? And I have there on your notes just a summary. I didn't copy everything there. Um, and what it means, what do those, those, these events mean? And how should we think about these events as followers of Jesus Christ? So first of all, what is happening? What is happening right now? Recognize that um, represent this study really is an oversimplification of the conflict in the Middle East. So I, I'm not being exhaustive here, just painting things to the broad strokes. Um, so we have an, uh, an idea of the geopolitical context of, of what is happening in Israel. So a little bit of history here. Um, on th this whole thing really started uh, with the War of Independence on May 14 of 1948. The modern state of Israel was formed. It, was, it is good to recognize that there was always a Jewish population living in the land since the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. So the Sephardi um, Jewish people has always lived there, even though there were Palestinians living there. Uh, there were always uh, Jewish people um, inhabiting that land. Now, Jewish people, survivor fresh off of the horror of the Holocaust, began to return to the land of their forefathers from a multi-millennial exile. This return is certainly evidence of God's sovereign providence. Now, in the kindness of God, he might choose to use the modern state of Israel in his final plans for human history, but he's not bound to do so. He is, and let me make this clear. 
um, God is still faithful to every word that he promised to Israel. But his promises are to the Jewish people, not to the modern country of Israel. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, having sworn, sworn by himself, will fulfill all his promises to the Jewish people, both Israeli and non-Israeli alike, according to Genesis 22:16. Though what specific political entities he intends to do this as of yet largely unknown to us. We don't know how he's going to do it. So in the wake of the modern state of Israel's establishment, so they had a, immediately after when the um, British uh, troops left the country, um, the, all the Arab countries around it attacked Israel. Um, and so this, um, after the, the, inhabit, the previous inhabitants of the land had been known up to that times by the British uh, army, as Palestine, that's how they used to call, and were largely displaced during the turbulent dec decades to follow, that followed. Since then, and here's where we're skipping uh, a little bit here of the history, the Palestinian and the Jewish people have been largely segregated into various territorial areas within the borders of national Israel. So um, let me just show you here. The major areas where the Palestinian people got uh, concentrated was the West Bank, this region here, and east of Jerusalem, um, the Gaza Strip, and then the Golan Heights over there in the north that was part of Syria. Um, so this is where most of the, the Palestinian population lives in Israel. But uh, one of those areas established under Israeli control in the wake of the Six-Day War in 1967 is the Gaza Strip. It's a, a piece of territory that is roughly the size of Omaha, Nebraska. It is a very small portion of land, but 2.2 million people, 2.2 um, million Palestinians live in that area. If it were counted as a country, which is not, it would be the third most densely populated country in the world. A lot of people live there. In 2005, the Israeli Defense Forces turned the governance of the Gaza Strip over to the Palestinian people. So during the war, um, after the war, they gave that territory, the Gaza Strip, into the Palestinian people. And shortly thereafter, in 2006, control of Gaza was seized by a radical group called, um, known as Hamas. Hamas is a terrorist organization that is primarily funded by Iran, um, so up north there, which explains many of the potential international repercussions of this conflict. So there is Saudi Arabia um, and Syria trying to fight for influence here um, in the Middle East, and this area is kind of their, um, really their, their bomb uh, place. So the Hamas is dedicated to the radical Islamic extremism, which explain many, explains many of the similar tactics uh, that ISIS had. 
in the days devoted to the destruction of Israel, which sets up an impossible situation given that they are located within Israel. So this is the Hamas. In the 17 years since their governance began, the, or, this organization has run a corrupt governmental regime that has taken advantage of the Palestinian people and has stirred up violence and chaos with the Israeli people. We need to be reminded that the, the Hamas doesn't represent all the Palestinian people. Among them, there are less extremist Muslims, Catholic Orthodox, and a small percentage of evangelical Christians. In any case, the majority of the, the Palestinians do not want the war, this war to, to continue and to be prolonged. They're quite okay living side by side with the Israeli state. So they're caught in the between the, of this crossfire. I remember during my time um, that I, I lived in Israel talking to uh, a Palestinian uh, pastor, and he was just sharing his disappointment over the understanding that many Christians, because they support Israel, they totally forget about their Palestinian brothers there um, in that area. So he shared his disappointment with the disregard of some Christians of their people's flight, uh, plight under the Hamas government. So then um, on Saturday, October the 7th, um, Hamas militants launched a deadly attack on the southern um, Israel from the Gaza, in the Gaza Strip. Um, so this was recent. Um, and these attacks came from thousands of rockets and ground incursions that broke through the Israeli blockade in Gaza. So they, all this area is, has a huge wall that separates them there, um, a fence. Um, but they built in tunnels to get through that territory. And it is really hard for the people that are living there because um, to get sustenance and food and all of that, it, it is closed up. So they, there was this festival um, happening in the south there of Israel, and that's when they attacked, was during this festival. The attacks came with thousands of rockets and ground incursions that broke through the Israeli blockade on Gaza. The attacks killed more than 1,000 Israelis, with the death toll continuing to mount as the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, regains control of the towns close to the Gaza border. So Israeli grieve the loss of life as reports of massacre of civilian people at this festival and this kibbutz, this um, community that they had came about. Israel has responded by declaring war on Hamas and conducting several days of unprecedented airstrikes on hundreds of locations across the Hamas-controlled Gaza Strip inflicting incredible suffering and destructions with few options for the safety of gays and civilians. Thousands have been injured and killed on both sides with civilian casualties continue to amount. And you probably have seen many videos of testimonies of people that survived the attack um, and the things that they witnessed, their loved ones dying. So in the area affected by the conflict, there are very small Christian minorities present who are greatly suffering 
in this war. Gaza is home to a rapidly shrinking and beleaguered um, Christian community that has been pressured from all sides. Gaza's Christians have suffered with the region more than 2 million inhabitants through the 16-year blockade and have witnessed multiple humanitarian crises through economic collapse, crumbling health services, travel restrictions, and and the conflict between Hamas and Israel. So with this background in mind, um, this terrorist organization is the group responsible for initiating the recent attack. In response, the state of Israel is now rightly seeking to defend itself through the total destruction of this organization and to wrest governmental control out of the hands of the extremists. This action, though clearly necessary for Israel's security, will obviously come with great and tragic collateral damage amongst the local Palestinian population into which the Hamas has embedded it itself in. This will be a compounded tragedy on the top of the atrocities that have already occurred to the Israeli population. Now, mind you, although this attack was one of the most catastrophic in in the contemporary history, Israel's constantly under attacks on a weekly basis. Most of it being diverted by their impressive military weapons such as the Iron Dome. Iron Dome. So I remember one of the, um, in one of the evenings, and so I lived with other students there in the area uh, near Jerusalem. And one night I heard an alarm sounding and we had bomb shelters that we needed to, to run immediately to. And um, so we ran to the bomb shelter uh, built for the students in our campus, and as I looked up to the sky, I marveled at the missiles being destroyed in the midst of the air um, by the Iron Dome. So I also recall a stabbing attack that happened in the old city of Jerusalem. It was like the end of the afternoon, and there was a big commotion, and a bunch of military people were there, ran to the place that um, the Palestinian had stabbed Um, a Jewish guy. And so this is not new. They experienced this. My point is that they experienced these things on a weekly basis. Um, I have talked to, I've seen even living here, I have a friend there, um, Angelina. She's a missionary kid living in Israel. And she constantly is posting stuff of pictures of the missiles that she's seeing from her window. Um, being shot at, and obviously, you know, the Iron Dome is destroying them. So this is not new. Um, it was unexpected uh, in the sense of the proportion and how they were really um, cowards in the way that they attacked. So um, now, just because this is common, I don't want you to think that I consider this issue lightly. I have friends currently living in Israel and dear pastors that I pray for who are in the thick of it with their families having to live in a constant mode of flight and fight. Yes, the atrocities we have witnessed in the media this past couple of weeks are grievous, and we should grieve for the families that lost their loved ones and for those that are still being brutally harmed, even as we speak. 
Now that we understand what is happening, so by no means this is an exhaustive account of what is happening, we must take up the questions that many are asking. Is this the beginning of the end? And should I pack now my rapture bag and <laughs> be ready? Um, is this event really showing that this is it? So that leads us to our next point here. What does this mean? What does this event there in Israel really mean? So I want to start by saying that it is important to state that there are no precursor events prophesied that would allow us to know the exact time of the beginning of the end. The Lord Jesus, and we're going to see here in Matthew 24, has given indications and signs, but it is not, okay, the year 2023 on this specific event, this is going to happen. The next event in God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church, based on the first Thessalonians chapter 4, um, if you want to go there. This is the next event that we should be looking for here. First Thessalonians 4 and verse 16. Paul is writing to encourage this church that is um, suffering strong persecution. And he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, this event, the rapture, is distinct from the second coming. And you will remember at some point here, I talked about the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And he said, in the same way that you saw me going up, you will see me coming down. And the scripture says that he's going to come back, specifically the Mount, Mount of Olives, and the mount's going to split one to the other side. There will be a huge earthquake um, when Jesus comes back. In this event here, he does not touch the earth. He meets the believers in this, up in the clouds in the sky. So there are two distinct events uh, regarding the return of Christ. This is what we know as um, the belief in pre-tribulational rapture. We believe that the rapture will happen before the tribulation uh, described in um, Revelation this event, prophesied in the New Testament, is an event that could happen at any time. And it's not contingent upon any particular set of geopolitical circumstances. So Israel could be under the influence of the Hamas. Israel could be totally controlled by the Palestinians. Mind you, there are Israelites all over the world. The Jewish people are spread all over the world. The Jewish living in Israel, the Israelis, are not the only ones that the Lord cares about. Now, for, for us, um, we are to be reminded uh, from 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 and 52 says, But behold, I tell you 
a mystery. We will not always sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So Paul is including himself there. Either if he died and Christ came after he died or he had still the expectation maybe, as he said in 1 Thessalonians, if we are alive, we'll be caught up in heaven with him. That's why we talk about the rapture as being imminent that word imminent it means that it can happen at any time it could have happened at the time that paul was here it could have happened in the the early thousands it could have happened in the 1500s it could have happened in the 1600s it could have happened at any time this is the reason why christians have always had one eye on this life and the other in heaven we're called to be a people who eagerly yearn and actively look for the, the return of Jesus. I appreciate the way that Philippians 3, 21, 20 to 21 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the extension of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So our expectation is not for wars or rumors of wars. Our eager expectation, it is for the return of our Savior, Lord. Titus 2, 11 to 14, I think it, how about we open there? It shows um, clearly how the believer operates with the mindset of the past, present, and future with hope. With hope. So Titus chapter 2, verses 14, uh, verse 11 through 14 says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Instructing, so this is past tense, that grace of God appeared in the past, right? Instructing us, this is present, um, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly in the present, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope, now that's future, that blessed hope of his return. The blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people of his own, for his own possession, zealous for good works. So we live with this expectation that Christ will come back and he will transform us. Now, many have observed closely the events of the last couple of weeks and attributed these wars and rumors of wars a sign that we are in the end of times. Biblically speaking, Jesus was very clear to his disciples in Matthew 24, verse 6. How about we go there, um, Matthew 24, and we're going to spend some time there. Matthew chapter 24.
in verse 6. And it says, um, You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars, and see that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Um, they're the birth pains. That's what he's referring to. Let's read these verses then in the full context. Starting in verse 1. Let's trace it back there. Jesus came out of the temple and was going away when his disciples come up to the point of the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you see all these things? So he's pointing to the temple and he's saying, Truly I say to you, that not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. He's saying this temple is going to be destroyed and not one stone is going to be on the top of each other. And that's exactly what happened in 70 AD. Um, the temple was destroyed. Um, the people were dispersed. And Jesus continues, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, like, tells us when these things will happen. Will it, what will be the sign, there's a key there, what will be the sign of your coming and of the, and the end of the age? And that's when Jesus said, you know, there will be these wars and rumors of wars, but for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, so that these things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And the birth pangs really is referring to um, the, the tribulation time when the whole earth will experience God's judgment. Then they will deliver you into tribulation and will kill you and it will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So right now, this is our mission. It's to preach the gospel until the Lord decides to come. And he's the only one that knows when is the day and time. Many might say, look at this passage and see, like, see, this is precisely the proof that we need in order to speculate. The end of the age is upon us. But Jesus continued by saying, see that you are not alarmed. God's point of writing these things is not that we would be alarmed, but that we would find comfort in him in the promise that he will come back. He says, for this must take place, but the end is not yet, and all these things are but the beginnings of birth pains. That's what he said. Jesus' point in that text is to instruct us that during the intervening time between his first and his second coming, human history will be marked by constant war, devastation, and death. 
That, that started right away when he ascended into heaven. And indeed, in the 20 centuries that have passed since the first coming of our Lord, this has been our shared human experience. This new war on the top of the Ukrainian war, on the top of all other wars, the First and Second World War, is just like all the conflicts that have been gone before it, and it will be like those that will like come after it. There probably be another war. So it is an evidence of humanity's fallen foolishness and our need for the Prince of Peace to return and bring righteousness. I appreciate Isaiah 9, 6, 7, and the song that we're singing, uh, first song we sung was the Prince of Peace, right? Apart from Christ, we are no better than those in the midst of the conflict. But we have this promise, for a child will be born to us, and he was, a son will be given to us, and the government, and that part hasn't gotten there yet, the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. He's the one that will bring true peace and lasting peace to Israel and to everyone who trusts in him. Also, I want to remind you to look further in the text, actually. Let's skip to verse 36 um, in that chapter 24 of Matthew. Jesus provided a list of signs. He also warned us not to make speculations, but to be vigilant. In verse 36, what does he say? But of that day or hour, no one knows. Oh, that is just so helpful for us to put this in the mind. When we hear people trying to tell the date or the year that the Lord is coming back. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, not even the Son, not even Christ knows. But the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, what was in the days of Noah? Nobody thought that something's going to happen. Everything is going to stay just as the same in the beginning of creation. And all of a sudden, they were caught by surprise. God removed eight people, put in the ark, and then sent destruction to the whole earth. In the same way, in the days of Noah, God is going to take up some of his people up to heaven to protect them and then send the judgment on the earth. It says, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like in the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, I, I mind you here, God's point here and Jesus' point here is to say, we can't speculate. Yes, those signs help us and give us hope, 
the, the end is close and he is coming back. This is the next event. But we don't need to be trying to speculate when that is going to happen. We should be vigilant. And that's the point here. He says, there, then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and one will be left. Just like in the days of Noah, some people were taken out to be protected and to be preserved. So verse 42, he says, Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day the Lord is coming. So when should we be ready? Always. We should always be ready because we don't know if he's coming tonight. We don't know if he's coming even during this sermon. <laughs> he can come at any time. And therefore, we should be on the alert. So, um, at every turn, as you read the news, and you should be reminded about the great sickness that our fallen condition has produced. What the atrocities that you're seeing is explained uh, by Romans 8. Uh, how about we turn there, Romans 8. Yes, creation is suffering. Um, Human beings are struggling through the fights and wars because of their sinful nature, because of the entering of sin in the world. And in verse 19, Paul's, Paul writes here, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to, the, to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Paul is saying this is already happening. There is this fear and, and, um, and anxiety for this to be gone, to be over. The great evils perpetrated by Hamas this past week are evidence that mankind is hopelessly lost. It was just like in the days of Noah. What was said in the days of Noah? That the Lord looked down and saw all the violence and he grieved over that. The death of thousands of innocent civilians that will necessarily result from the coming urban siege and invasion is a reminder that we need a ruler of whom can be said righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Psalm 89, 14. In the meantime, it is only because of the Lord's great love that we are not all consumed. We must always remember, even in the face of evil, that his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. So eschatologically speaking, and the ends of times, in terms of end of times, 
We cannot know whether or not the current events in Israel are the beginning of the end. Um, this has been happening since Jesus left and he made those promises. So it is, it is no different than before. But here's what we can know. And this was Jesus' point. The events happening today in Israel are a reminder that the end is coming. And towards that end, that we should look and live in a way that is glorifying to him. For when Jesus shows up, he will rule with such perfection that there will be lasting peace. Zechariah 9.10, um, I, I love this verse. It says, I will cut off the chariot from, Abraham, from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. There will be no more weapons. There will be no more weapons. And he will speak peace to the nations. The word shalom in Hebrew is more than just a political peace. It is a blessedness. It is a joy and happiness that can only come through a restored relationship with God. And it says that his dominion will be from sea to sea and from river to river to the ends of the earth. So when is Jesus going to return? And are these events a sign that he's coming now? It's important to know that the scriptures are silent on the, on the sequence of events leading up to the beginning of the period that we know as the second coming. There's not a progression as we read those signs in Matthew 24. They all are happening at the same time. And as I've said, the next event in God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. So once the church has been removed and the dispensation known as the church age has concluded, it is at that point when God's attention will return to his chosen Jewish people. This is the theological position that we call as premillennial dispensationalism. So turn to Ezekiel chapter 39 um, in verses 25 and through 29, Ezekiel 39, and I just want to encourage you um, to maybe set aside preconceived ideas about end of times, and really think about why the Lord wants, is talking about these things, why he is informing us, and to look for these things. So Ezekiel 39 and verses uh, 25 through 29 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will, I, um, I will at store the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. I will be jealous for my holy name. They will forget their disgrace and all their treachery which they perpetrated against me when they live securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. There'll be a time that the Jewish people won't have to live in fear anymore. I thought it was interesting when I was flying back and passed through the TSA 
uh, this last week, there was a lady, I think she was Jewish, because um, I have a Israeli flag on my, my backpack, and she was like, oh, I see a star here. I think I am safe sitting next to you. And she had, here's my star. She pulled her necklace that had a star of David. Um, they're, they're yearning for peace, but they don't have that peace yet. He says, when I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord, their God, because I made them to go into the exile among the nations and then gather them again to their own land, and I will leave none of them there any longer. Now, I think that, um, you know, some people look at the creation, the state of Israel was like, oh, this is totally a prophecy fulfilled. You know, this is exactly what the Lord predicted. Um, Yes, I, I do think that there was God intervening there. But not all Israelites, not all Jewish people moved to Israel. We have Jewish people here in Minnesota. We have Jewish people in New York. We have Jewish people all over the world in Brazil. And this has not been fulfilled yet. It says, they will know that I am the Lord their God because I made them to go into the exile in the nations. And then I gather them again to their own land and I will leave none of them there any longer. Are there still Jewish people here in the U.S.? Yes, there is. I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I have poured out my spirit onto the house of Israel, declares the Lord. So in that day, as as foretold by the prophets, his attention will return to the Jewish people, and though the tribulation period, even through the tribulation period, they will be preserved even through their great trial. Um, Coming back to Matthew 24, Matthew 24, Looking at verse 21, Matthew 24, verse 21 says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake, for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So all of this will occur even as a judgment of God that is being poured upon all mankind. If you read Revelation chapter 6 through 19, you'll see all the destruction, the description of the tribulation time. Then at the end of the tribulation period, the Jewish people will turn in mass back to God and with one voice, they will look upon Jesus whom they have pierced and cried out for salvation. Um. Halfway the tribulation time, the people of Israel will think, boy, this, this guy that is claiming to be the Messiah is not the Messiah. If he's not the Messiah, where is the Messiah? Oh, he already came, and we killed him. So read Isaiah 53. I know that it's a passage that we are familiar with, and we normally read during the Lord's um, Supper as a reminder of his sacrifice but really, I want you to look at this passage as, as it's supposed to be from the Israel perspective. 
This is the people of Israel talking about God's work in their life during that time. So, in verse 4, it says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, of God, and afflicted. In that day, the Jewish people will confess their sins. Surely our sins and our transgressions, they will confess and they will repent from it. In that day, they will look to him for their atonement, for their forgiveness. It says, verse 5, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. This is how we are forgiven. It is through this sacrifice, this substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. So they will look to him for their atonement, for their forgiveness. In that day, verse 6 and 7, they will acknowledge their need for him. They'll say, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, the Lord. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. They, they are seen. They will see then who he is and why he came. By, the oppression, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the, out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with the wicked man, and yet he was with the rich, rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, who is talking about here, of those who believed in him. And he will prolong his days, and the pleasure, uh, and good pleasure, the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and will be satisfied by his knowledge of the righteous one. My servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. So one day they will be saved. Romans. Uh, chapter 11 recounts what that day will look like. Um, we're not going to read the, this one, but that day when the Prince of Peace returns to establish a reign of peace, salvation will come to the Jewish people, both spiritually and politically. He will be reigning again. But that day, tragically, is not today. Today, they are in the condition of a spiritual blindness, 
that has characterized them ever since they finally rejected Jesus and he hid himself from their eyes. They saw him and yet they did not see him. They heard him, but yet they did not understand him or believed him. Zechariah chapter 9, uh, chapter 12, I think this is a, a good passage for us to, to look at. Zechariah chapter 12. It's toward the end of the books there in the Old Testament. Zechariah 12. Verse 9, and we're going to read all the way through 13, verse 1. Here's the promise that God gave to the people of Israel. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Do you see that? They will look on him on whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will keep bitterly, they'll weep bitterly over him like the bitter whipping of a firstborn. In that day, they, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadad Dramanon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves. And all the families, if you're here in Sunday school, we talked about this specific and general. Um, he's giving specifics. Specific groups and tribes of Israelites that will come back and return to the Lord. And eventually he says, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. They will be forgiven. The result is that today, lasting peace continues to escape the Jewish people. As a nation, Israel can and must defend their interests and security as a sovereign nation. We support that. They do deserve the support of the United States in their endeavor. Not only they are an ally, but they are also democratically critical, a democratically critical piece to the safeguard of our own national interest and security. The integrity of our own American nation depends upon us standing with our commitments to their nation. To date, those commitments have been honored as well as they should be. Our national integrity demands it. Um, Israel has been a, a longtime partner of the United States. So in all likelihood, Israel will be successful in their endeavor because they, um, the keen observer of Israeli history, will note their tendency not just to get even, but to get ahead. But even though they might win for themselves a temporary, temporary amnesty, they, having turned their back upon their Messiah, are yet lost in the darkness and thus can have no true peace. Their present condition is as described by the prophet Jeremiah. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace. But there is no peace. 
Were they they ashamed because of the abomination that they have done? They were not ashamed. They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. And at the time that I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. So that peace that they so long for will only come to them on the day when their eyes there are unblinded and the Lord restore their spiritual vision so that they can look with appreciation and wonder upon him whom they have pierced. And it's knowledge that leads us to our last question. How should we think about this then? These events do matter. And I, I put some points here that Dr. Rich Gregory brought. He says, because they reminds us that what Israel needs and doesn't have. What is it? The knowledge of their Messiah. They don't have that. Because it reminds us of what humanity needs and doesn't have. It's not just the Israelites. The Palestinians too. Salvation from evil and death. And because of the global and economic instability that always rushes in into the wake of war, reminds us that this world is not our home. We do not store up our treasure here because we live for the one king who reigns over all. We know that normally when there is a war, there is an impact in our economy and prices go up and people get desperate and they start buying and purchasing left and right because they're afraid of an increased number uh, of, of prices. We should not be storing up things um, on this earth. This knowledge should drive how we think, and more importantly, how we pray for these current events. Well, we, we did read Psalm 122, verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That peace is not a geopolitical peace. Indeed, as we've learned, that is presently impossible. They can't experience God's shalom, this blessedness, apart from their Messiah. No doubt that the primary purpose of this psalm concerns prayer for the holy city of Jerusalem. This application could certainly be made literally so that people would pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Jerusalem means the city of peace, interestingly enough. For such prayer would be a part of God's program for Jerusalem as revealed in prophecy. Moreover, that worn, torn part of the world certainly needs peace. And the issue of Jerusalem is at the center of the conflicts. But since the city is not at the center of true worship today, nor the center of the theocratic program, of God presently, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem would necessarily include praying that its inhabitants would come to know the Prince of Peace, without whom there can be no lasting peace in that region or anywhere else for that matter. And in the fullest meaning of words, a prayer for the peace and the prosperity of the holy city is a prayer for the coming of Christ to end their trouble and strife. But even though permanent political peace cannot be had until that day, that doesn't mean that spiritual peace can't be achieved today. And that is hope here. 
And that's the message of the gospel. Jesus is the one who is our peace with God, Ephesians 2.14. Therefore, we have peace with God. Ruling our hearts so that we can have peace in the midst of a disordered world, Colossians 3.15. Because of him, we can rest our hearts and minds guarded in perfect peace, according to Philippians 4.7. And this is a condition that can only be ours when our hearts and minds are fixed on him. So though the world might be raging around us, we have peace with God. This is the gospel. It is the only hope for the peace of Jerusalem. And this is what it truly means to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So, I, I appreciated this list here, and maybe this should guide you as you pray. So this is how we should pray for them. Well, we should pray that their eyes of the Jewish people who have been blinded to the gospel's glory would be opened by the divine power of the Holy Spirit, and that individuals would come to see Jesus as their only hope and source of peace. Yes, there will be a mass conversion of Jewish people in the tribulation, but even today we can pray that some of them will be saved. We should also pray for the individual Palestinian people whose lives are now being threatened um, would abandon the satanic falsehood known as Islam, Islam and would turn to Jesus, their only eternal king who is worthy of worship and capable of salvation. They believe a false doctrine. They believe a false god. And that's really what is leading them. We should pray for the sensation of hostility to preserve the life of innocence on both sides as blood is surely going to be shed and as it has been. All those non-combatants are men and women made in the image of God and in need of salvation from God. We should also pray for wisdom to be divinely granted to the leadership of our nation and to the nation of Israel who they have universally rejected, though they have re universally rejected the gospel of God, desperately need wisdom and a skill to bring justice, to love mercy, and restore temporal peace into a troubled region. Yes, it is okay for us to pray for this temporary peace. We should pray for one another that we would not allow our hearts to be troubled for the ending isn't in doubt. Jesus has overcome this world already and is still catching up to that reality. So let not our hearts to be troubled. He is coming back. That is our hope. That leads to our last one here. Our prayer should be one with the Apostle John when he finished writing the book of Revelation. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great mercy with which you have loved us and the, the display of your mercy on us through the sacrifice of Christ. Lord, and we know that you didn't die just for us Gentiles alone. You died for the Jewish people as well. And though their hearts might be hardened right now and there might be uh, they're experiencing great pains for their disobedience, Lord, we pray that they will be restored to you. And we know that that is only possible when you're here. So please come, Lord Jesus, and help us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.